Hello and welcome to Let's Get Psyched, a program that explores the controversial and challenging issues from a psychological and psychiatric perspective, as well as the implications for clinical practice. I'm your host, psychologist, Dr. Aaron Parks, Assistant Director at the University of California Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, and I'm joined by my co-host, Child and Adolescent Psychiatry Fellow, fellow Dr. Al Atkins. Hi, Al. Hey, everybody. And fourth-year medical student and our production assistant, Yasmin Dakama. Hi, Yas. Hi, guys. The views expressed on Let's Get Psyched are those of the speaker. They do not represent the University of California, UC Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, or UCR School of Medicine. Let's Get Psyched is not intended to replace mental health assessment and treatment. The information shared on the show is for educational purposes only. Well, on this episode, we're going to talk about why we grieve and maybe some things about cultural differences in expressions of grief. And to do that, we are very happy and honored to have us join again, Dr. Catherine Shear. Dr. Shear is the Marion Kinworthy Professor of Psychiatry and the founding director of the Center for Prolonged Grief at Columbia University School of Social Work. Dr. Shear is a clinical researcher whose work over the past 25 years is focused on the understanding and treating people who experience persistent intense grief, which is now an official diagnosis called prolonged grief disorder in the DSM-5-TR. She developed and confirmed via three large NIMH-funded studies the efficacy of prolonged grief disorder therapy, a short-term strength-based intervention that helps foster adaptation to loss. Kathy, thank you for joining us again on Let's Get Psyched. Thanks very much. It's it's great to be here, Erin. Thanks for having me. Now, what is your thoughts about why we grieve? Why is it important? Why is it a human thing? Is there, are there some sort of evolutionary advantages or uh, like what, what is what is going on there? So I, I think the first thing we have to do is define what we mean by grief, because people do define that in a, in a lot of different ways. A lot of people think grief is sadness. It's just a form. It's it's a deep form of sadness. And it, it certainly there's reason to think that, but it is more than that. So grief, the way we do define grief and most people in the grief field define it is that it's the response to loss and it's the it's a total body response. It's a it's a psychological, physiological, behavioral, social, spiritual response to the the loss of the loss of something we care about. So gr- we grieve anything we care about, but our work has focused completely on um, the loss of someone close. So the loss of a loved one, essentially, the grief that follows loss of a loved one, and. And so that's what we're talking about here, just to be clear. So why do we grieve the loss of a loved one? I think the question that I found myself wanting to ask is, is if grief is the law is is the response to loss, what is it that we've lost that we're responding to? And so in in a sense, the question is, um, you know, what is what does it mean to be close to someone? And what do we lose when we when we lose that. And, and so personally, I turn, I turn mostly to answer that question to the attachment literature, because that's the best studied sort of um, frame for understanding close relationships, not the only one, but it is, it's one of the best studied. And, and actually it does seem to hold up across cultures. We were talking about culture. We want to talk about culture a little bit here. What's different, what's interesting about um, attachment and across cultures is that if you look at childhood, early childhood attachment, what you find is that the the, the need for the close relationship, the, the connection that 
an individual forms, a, a child or an infant forms with a primary caregiver, that's pretty clearly there. And, and the function of that as a secure base and a safe haven is there. But how it's how it's um, sort of operationalized or implemented varies sometimes very dramatically across cultures. And people who are interested in this, there's there's a whole section, recent section of, um, I think it's called Attachment and Human Behavior. It's a, it's a journal that has a whole section of that. And I'm not going to get into that, but I, I just want to make the point that that there's pretty clear evidence that attachment relationships are biologically part of us and that they're there because we need other people. We are fundamentally social animals and we are and we especially need close relationships. That's one of the things that we really need. And and so what do they provide? <clears throat> As I mentioned, what we the functions we call safe haven, which is the person, a person that we turn to when we're stressed or threatened or have a problem or need help. And they're there for us. And they're gonna, you know, we can pretty much rely on them to be there for us to help. And secure base, which means that's the person who is our, um, our, our sort of the person who has our back when we're out doing things independently in the world and who has confidence in us and who encourages us to do those things and who shares in our, in our pleasure and satisfaction when we succeed. So they, that's called capitalization in the psychology literature that, that, um, um, that we we bring our successes to the people we love and they are even more excited about them than we are. And so that, you know, that's really, that's the functions. That's that's the functions we know about and we live every day. And, and, and also they're just pleasant to be with. You know, we want to be with them, not be separated from them, all things being equal. That's That's what our close relationships are. But actually it turns out they're much more than that. They also... There's been a whole line of research now about how um, attachment um, affects our every, just about every psychological function, perception, um, uh, things like um, our ability to control um, intrusive thoughts, emotion regulation, our sense of self, um, and also physiologic functions are affected by the people we're close to. So they, they just have these very, very, in, you know, intense um, and far reaching effects on our life. So it's really be, that, and that's just the person, just when that person is gone, we're losing all of that. And we're losing it kind of suddenly, even when they're gradually dying, you know, even though we, even if someone who's dying, we know they have a terminal illness and they're dying, that moment of transition is still very, very different than anything that has led up to it. And so, and that's really the moment when all the physiologic stuff is gone, right? And, and, um, and they're really gone. So, so we react to that. That's really, we, we respond to that. And, but that's not all because when someone close dies, it affects not only us, but so many people, so many other people. And many of those other people are people in our lives too. So it changes our social, it, it changes our social um, environment pretty dramatically. And it also changes, it often changes our sense of ourselves socially. It changes our sense of ourselves personally and also socially, our social role functioning, 
um, our our social identity, our our um, and and this is true for other people as well as for us. It's not only you know. So people all of a sudden see us as a a bereaved person or a person who's now kind of had a, a kind of an amputation almost of of um, a part of our life and. And that makes people around us uncomfortable. And there's a whole lot of of things that derive from that as well. Have you seen uh, any cultural practices from outside of um, your culture or or, uh, American culture for grief that you found particularly interesting or enlightened? Well, I mean, there are fascinating... I mean, I've read about them more than seen them, actually, but there are fascinating variations. There are, there are as many variations as you could imagine, and even some you can't imagine. There's a there's a culture. I think it's in I think it's in Indonesia. You can find it on the internet, of course, but um, where people keep the person who died in their homes for. I mean, that's not so unusual, but they keep them there for as long as possible. So the more wealthy you are, you the longer you, and this might be years we're talking about. We're not talking about days. We're talking about much more extended time. And then, and and while they're there, they interact with them, with the person who's died. I mean, that's, you know, that's just, uh, I don't know a lot more than what I've seen on videos on the internet myself, but it, that's just an example of a vastly different way of, of handling a loss. So there are, there are, and there are so many cultural differences in, in how people, um, how cultures understand how to manage that, that transition really from, from being with someone who's alive to being with someone who's no longer alive and what you do with the body and how you, how you are supposed, how you're expected to react and, and then how long you're expected to react in that way. So some people, you know, some cultures expect people to celebrate the life right away. They expect people to celebrate the life and to have parties and happiness. And they don't want people, you know, they, people don't actually mourn in the way that we think of mourning. Um, then other cultures think in our culture, we do expect people to mourn and, and to be sad and to have all kinds of feelings but then that should last for like a day or two, a week or two. I mean, a very short period of time. Just building on Al's question, um, do you think there's aspects of our, of our U S culture, American culture that make grieving particularly difficult? Absolutely. I think there's no question about that. I mean, any grief therapist will tell you that because I mean, like I said, most people most people will get support in the beginning. Some people don't even in the beginning. That's that's aberrant though in our culture. I mean, most people, you know, we we will go over to a person's house. I mean, there there are various different ways that that happens. But often we bring food. We go over to their house. We keep them comfort. But but that that will last for maybe maybe a week. Give it a week. Mm-hmm. And, and this. Oh, sorry yeah. about that. Go ahead. <laughs> um, I'm just going to say this, this question that is brought up makes me wonder a lot about the customs and if that might influence the prevalence of prolonged grief disorder um, just around like some communities having more community to experience their grief with. Yeah, I think that's such that's such an interesting 
point, Jazz. I think I think it's probably true, but we have no evidence for it at the moment because right now we've seen this in pretty much every culture it's been looked for, and it has been studied in many cultures around the world in many different um, places. Almost, I would say, pretty much on every continent. Um, there's so many cultures, so each you know each country has many many different cultures within it, and so. It certainly hasn't been, dis- but you would think, right, that that if some culture really gets it right, that sort of, and I guess the thing is, you know, I thought you were going to ask me what's normal grief, right? Mm-hmm. You want to you know what's normal grief? And my answer to that is all grief is normal because it's not the, it's grief is not the problem. Grief is, grief is the response to loss, but it's actually the response to the experience of the loss in the moment is the way I think of it, because it varies within us. It varies from day to day, sometimes even from hour to hour. And it also evolves over time. And it really changes as our experience of the loss evolves and change. As we come to terms with the loss, that's really the answer, I think, to the question of why we don't grieve kind of forever, because the the death is forever. Why don't we just, why don't we, we're still missing that person forever. So what happens when we adapt to the world without that person, right? That's that's really what we have to do. And that's where the problems come is when we have problems adapting. So grief is what it is. I mean, it's it's we never we don't target grief at all. We never anything that you experience is just it's just showing us how you're experiencing the loss. Regina Spector, uh the creative singer has a line uh, I think it's about a breakup, but uh, it's, 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 I thought I'd cry for you forever, but I don't even remember what your ears looked like. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I think that another one was like, uh, didn't even need therapy to rehabilitate my smile. There, there's a whole, it's, it's a great song. I, I'm wondering, you know, you're a scientist, but part of medicine is also an art. Can you construct for us? And if you want, you can, bounce this right back to me, but can you construct for us what an ideal and creative morning ritual would look like if you were creating one from scratch? No, <laughs> I can't. And that's because, that's because, you know, there's a, there's a mantra in, in, um, in the grief world. It's everyone grieves in their own way. And that is completely true, but it's not only that everyone grieves every loss in a unique way, because you know, you, we don't grieve person A, we don't have the same relationship with any two people. And so what we're losing is gonna be different. And if you think about if what we're responding to is what we're losing, then it's always gonna be different. So I guess, I mean, I suppose if you could invent some ritual, I do think rituals are good. I think they're helpful. They put some structure around an amorphous and very, very emotionally activated experience and structure always helps emotional activation, but you have to be careful. You have, and I guess, you know, I guess this is part of what we do in our, in our therapy is to, is to try to, we do put like structure around the experience. We help people structured within their own mind by kind of explaining some of this and we help them structure it by providing, you know, like sort of a plan. Um, and that's kind of what a ritual is. And we encourage people to do little rituals, actually. I th- that's one of the things that almost always helps people who are grieving, you know, early on is to, 
is to find some time during each and every day to do something that is as pleasurable as possible. So in the beginning, it's hard, but, you know, but something you keep trying and you keep doing it and you do it in a ritualistic way. I think that's, Hmm. but, you know, support, something that demonstrates support. You want to demonstrate the community support that that would be in, in that ideal ritual. Yeah. So, so something I've heard of, and I unfortunately can't speak to um, what culture it comes from or whether it's even a true cultural construction or something that's been kind of um, morphed by its interpretation uh, by practitioners who've kind of called it their own. And I'm not going to quote the person who I read this from because I don't know whether I want to, I don't know anything about them and whether they should be promoted or not. But the practice in itself that I found interesting was um, a person who's mourning kind of uh, appoints a chaperone and they the chaperone takes them through the town to the sea. And I'm, I'm presuming that this might be like a culture that is close to the sea, but um, their job is to kind of mourn and, and have a catharsis and scream and sing and cry and look at the moon. And they, they, they walk to the sea and this, I, I pres- it sounds like that takes about a day. And then they kind of are in the sea for some time. They're, they're kind of maybe, either dancing or crying or all of the above kind of in the waves and, and, and screaming and, um, and then are, are kind of brought back with their, or walk back with the chaperone from there. And they have this kind of like wild catharsis that's allowed to be performative. And, um, I, you know, I, I, I certainly don't think that's the whole thing, but I think that's an interesting, uh, contrast to where we're at and it you know it also evokes for me like some of the in ghana there's and and i think in in other countries as well there's professional mourners that are hired to come to a funeral that are the loudest criers and kind of extol the 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 deep virtues of the person who was lost based on the the magnitude of their catharsis but i think also kind of enable they kind of uh, create some of that like um lubricate social lubrication for other people to come out with their feelings what i don't know what are your thoughts on those and have you heard other kind of inspiring practices along those lines yeah i mean actually that's very interesting and i can see why it's it, it seems appealing i i don't know i don't know if that would be um something i would i'd have to give it some thought but i think it is really interesting and what it made me think of was was the time when a student came into my office and um, said she wanted to tell me a story, someone who was in a grief class I was teaching. And she said um, she had been actually in Vietnam on a trip with her husband. And they were, I don't know, they were hiking or something. And he basically had um, a heart attack and died right there. And so they were near a kind of a village. They came and got him from the village and brought him to the, the local hospital. And when they got there, everyone all the staff, the the nurses, the doctors stopped what they were doing if they could. I mean, obviously, you know, but the, the ones that could stopped what they were doing and gathered around the body and washed, you know, participated in washing the body. And then they all processed together outside, you know, out of the out of the hospital to wherever they were taking the body and I, I don't know where that was exactly but but she said that it was it was just the most peaceful thing for her mm-hmm. she's she, it was just amazingly 
um, calming and peaceful for her to be a part of this, even though she didn't, you know, they were saying things she couldn't understand and, you know, and, and um, it, it wasn't something she knew about, but it, I mean, I think it, that to me is a very beautiful kind of thing. And that's the kind of thing that to me, I guess, if I were going to, if I were going to sort of try to change the culture in some way, it would be in that direction more so because I think when we gather, when we gather people together and mourn together or, or, or honor the person in some way, honor the person, um, care for the person after they've died, that to me is very, very comforting to a bereaved person that everyone else cares. That's one of the things that that bothers people a lot is that it seems like no one else cares, you know, like this enormously in person important person died and nobody else cares. I'm thinking about a book that I had read and it's, I I don't remember the author, but she wrote something similar that her, her partner had passed and it was a memoir and how the most challenging thing was that life had continued and yet she was so different now. So that sense of self was different. So, yeah. But, but having everybody else stop for a, for a moment, even, even in a, in a kind of, um, um, you know, a performative or a metaphorical way or something, you know, it doesn't have to be for a long time, but but to acknowledge that death, to acknowledge the importance of that person and the importance of the person um, who needs to be supported is just some kind of, the ritual rituals around that is what I think I would want to, I would want to prescribe if I was going to do that. You know, one of the great things about you, um, the therapy that you develop, prolonged grief disorder therapy, is that it offers some really good guidance for clinicians when they have meaning of life questions and why questions. So I wonder if you could just give a few um, kind of tips and pointers. When these co- this comes up, when there's a, a persistent and and they want to, it almost they, they would like to take it more in that direction of why and meaning of life questions. And they want to, they want you to help them make sense of that and how do you handle that what what is what is the appropriate uh, the approach so this is a, a a patient who's coming and wants to know is that what you're is it, yeah you're, yeah and they and they're and they're yeah they suffered a loss and then you know this comes up in in therapy uh you know from time to time and sometimes it's it's difficult because sometimes i feel feel it can be there could be a lot of uh, uh, in input from the per, the clinician's own life or the clinician's own ideas about what life means and, and, and why they, they should move on. Like you were saying before in our previous episode about how that can be a, 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 a thing that clinicians do, unfortunately, is, is even repeat that. But what, how does, how does your therapy, what is your therapeutic approach or how you address such really persistent, intense questions like that? So, I mean, I guess it's a little hard to answer because it's, it, you're talking at a, a little bit too high conceptual level. So I'm not sure exactly what the person, the the imagined person is exactly struggling with. I mean, but what I would, you know, what I, what I always do is active listening. I mean, when, I mean, whenever, I mean, I think that's a principle to follow when you're doing any kind of therapy and you're not sure what the answer to what a a question you're being asked is, you want to know more about the question because that often helps you to be able to respond. And the fact is, so, but I'm glad you mentioned, you know, clinicians don't always know what to say. I, I think in this is a situation, grief is a, working with someone grieving is a situation where we almost always feel that way. We almost always feel like we don't know what to say. 
because we really don't have anything that we can say to change the situation. We can't, we can't, we have no place to go with it actually in a way because, um, because what the person is really wanting is why did, you know, they're really asking why did this person have to die? You know, why do we die? And I mean, I can't answer that question. Can you answer that question? I mean, we can't answer that question. So, I mean, sometimes, sometimes I actually, you know, I, I go in the religious direction, you know, is the person a religious person and what's happened to their, their religion. Again, we've done work with, um, I've done work with, with some intensive work with the black Baptist church a while ago. And, and they, um, you know, they have a, a way of dealing, of course, with death. All churches, all all religions deal with death and dying. That's one of the reasons why we have them, right? Um, have religions. And so, what, but one of the things that often happens when someone close dies is that a religious person suddenly feels like they are disconnected from their religion. Like they don't, like they don't feel the presence of God. Sometimes they feel that happens. And if you read C.S. Lewis, A Grief Observed, he's an, a good example of that. He was a very religious man, and he his his wife died, and that's what the book is about. It's a little book that describes his experience um, after she died. And one of the things he said is that God was not a comfort. It, there was no way he could turn to religion or God. In, fa in fact, he, he kept trying, he said, and it was like the doors were slammed shut. I think that's the way he said it. But then eventually he kind of came around and was able to start to see um, in a very, very interesting way, which I, I'm not going to do justice to right now, so I'm not going to try to quote him, but he 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 solves that problem. But it's a, I mean, I would I would I guess I would validate the question. I think that's one of the things to do when someone's questioning the meaning of life. I would say I can see why you're doing that. I mean, I, you know, I understand completely and I. I don't think we have answers and, you know, but then tell me more about what you've been thinking and kind of go in. And that, that's where I think Jazz, you were talking earlier about existential therapy and, you know, that it's kind of, you could go in that direction. Are there ways, you were talking about different cultural interpretations of grief and, and experiences of grief. Have you um, looked at uh, how therapeutically your approach can be adapted to different cultures and if there are variations with how effective it is or, or little, little little modifications that would help quite a bit to the your approach yeah i mean and so so we really personalize the treatment which i think in in the previous episode when we discussed it i i couldn't really explain that very well but if you know if anyone's interested in learning it it's very very personalized and that's part of the answer here and the an the other answer is Yes, we have looked in, we, we have a paper that's about to be submitted for publication where um, we looked at the subset, small subset, unfortunately, but 55 um, individuals who self-identified as black compared to the, the large number who self-identified as white. And the outcome was absolutely not different. It was actually a little bit better in the black participants. However, what, you know, I think what was happening in the room was that adjust those little adjustments were being made, but they were being made more on an individual level, taking that individual's culture is part of that individual more than trying to really 
totally culturally um, change it. And then I want to tell you one other example, which is we had a Chinese um, postdoc just before COVID, and she was really interested in learning therapy. And so she learned, and she came into my office before we started this, and she said, she said, you know, I'm really, really interested in the cultural differences. And by that time, this was you know, just a couple of years ago, we'd all already had experiences in, in Japan, a lot of experience in Ireland, which isn't vastly different, but actually is more different than you might think. And culturally in Italy, in Norway, in, um, uh, I, I said Japan, Japan was one of the earliest um, countries where there were, there were colleagues who wanted to um, do this therapy and did it. And they, they actually published one of them published one study, but they've also been, they, I don't think there's, their other study hasn't been published yet, but they've shown that they do the therapy based on the same manual. They translated into Japanese and, and, um, and they got the same outcome. But, but my colleague there, the one that I worked with most closely said to me on many occasions, she said, you know, and, and also they brought videos of which I, you know, they were speaking Japanese. I couldn't understand them, but they showed me the videos of doing the therapy and it was pretty clear they were doing what we were doing. But she said there are lots of cultural differences. And, and when we tried, you know, we, we've been planning to try to figure out what those are. But so they just naturally were able to make those adaptations. And that's what happened with the Chinese graduate student also. She was expecting to make um, differences, but then she ended up doing a video treatment with someone in China while she was, because she couldn't leave because of COVID. And um, and she did this and we supervised her, someone else at, at our center supervised her, but the treatment went really well. And, and um, she said it was, you know, it, it, she, she, she also said she, I mean, I, I think people don't even know they're making those those um, cultural differences, but they do it naturally when you're of the same culture. And that's all the time we have for this edition of Let's Get Psyched. Today, we talked about why we grieve and cultural difference in grieving with Dr. Catherine Shear. Kathy, thank you for joining us again on Let's Get Psyched. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. And thank you also to our co-hosts, doctors, uh, Dr. Al Atkins and fourth-year medical student uh, Yasmin Dakama who is also our production assistant. If you have comments, questions, or suggestions for the show, you can write us at getpsyched.kucr at gmail.com. And you can also listen to past episodes of Let's Get Psyched on your favorite streaming platform, as well as enjoy an extended version of the show. If you like tonight's show, please follow us and post a review. This episode was recorded remotely in our homes. Our producer is Elliot Fong, production assistant, Yasmin Dakama. Thank you. And I've been your host, psychologist, Dr. Aaron Parks. Tune in next week for another edition of Let's Get Psyched. All right, for the extended version, I wanted to ask this question with these with these different um, cultural adaptations um, and, and 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 different approaches, do you think that we as uh, given given how we've uh, there's been loss all over the world um, with this this pandemic, do you feel like we uh, there are things that we as a nation could do and um as a uh, um and and maybe beyond um that where we're not managing the loss that we've suffered from the pandemic as well as we could do you, and it's affecting us it's affecting us and our relationships in our society um i know there's a lot of different things that go into how the pandemic has affected it but is has has grieving been a part of it and, and just difficulty with loss 
Well, I mean, for sure, grieving has been a big part of it. We've lost, you know, what is it? it? I think it's over a million people died from the pandemic at this point, right? And so those people had loved ones and those loved ones are, that's the that's the first layer of grief, right? I mean, there's, there's a huge increase in the number of bereaved people because there's been a huge increase in our death rate during, you know, it, pretty much COVID wasn't, totally you know added on but almost at least the statistics i've seen so it wasn't people who were already going to die who died of covid it was other people and the people who were already you know there are a lot of people the same number of people died of other causes as always die of other causes you know pretty much our death rate um, has been pretty stable over the last three or four years from that cause I mean, from non-COVID causes. So yes, and then and then of course there's been loss of so many other people have lost their jobs, people have lost their um, homes, people have lost their ability to socialize. That's a big one. I mean, there's lots and lots of loss, and I don't think as a culture we we do very well. Like we were talking about before, we're very productivity oriented. We're very much, you know wanting to move forward and and not you know we think we consider we consider emotions and emotional expression and vulnerabilities to be not very valued and so you know we're not we don't stop what we're doing and gather around the coffin you know metaphorically or gather around the body rather metaphorically even you know whatever it is we don't we don't pause and all acknowledge the pain and share the pain, be willing to share the pain and then move on in maybe a slightly different way, but move on with that in mind, you know, like process out of, out of that. It's, it's like, okay, you know, yes, we understand you have to grieve. We have to put up with it for a little bit of time, but then, you know, you just have to get, you know, get with the program and move forward. So yeah, I think we, we would do better, but we're not going to change that. I don't think we're going to change that. But I, you reminded me of something I want to mention, which is the American Hospice Found the Foundation. I'm sorry, the um, Hospice Foundation of America has sponsored, along with us and a, a bunch of other people, a bill in the United States. Um, right now, it's in the House of Representatives. It was it was um, put forward last Friday to provide funding for grief work for grief training and you know for training clinicians it's a really amazing opportunity to get some federal funds based on covid but also other um you know gun violence i mean we we have so many reasons why our country needs to be able to deal with with grief at least our mental health professionals need to be able to do that and so if if anyone is listening to this or you guys have any connections where we if we have on our I think it's on our website, but you can definitely get information for us. We have a letter writing campaign going and, you know, it's, I think, well worth supporting. So that's, that's kind of a reaction, a response to what, what you asked, I think. That's great. Maybe we can also put that um, on our, on our, on our, our website podcast um, description. Um, I also um, want to ask, you know, have you studied this or have, have you noticed that it, this, the approach that you use, that you use is also effective for losses that 
are, you know, fairly traumatic, but maybe you didn't lose a loved one. It's not a bereavement, but like maybe a, a lost romance. Yeah, like a divorce or, or lost romance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Only anecdotally, but anecdotally, people have used this kind of this approach. I mean, I I once supervised a colleague who's a who had been seeing someone for I think she said a number of years. Um, helped her a little bit who had had a really traumatic divorce and and she said you know she wanted to try this so I, I loosely supervised her I mean I sort of like followed along and and that person did do much better with you know using some of these strategies that we use um, that's very anecdotal mm -hmm. and in ambiguous loss is there also I guess that's maybe divorce can be considered under ambiguous loss the sense or is it ambiguous loss leading up to divorce? I, this is a question now. <laughs> I'm sorry, say that again? <laughs> um, I guess I'm curious about your therapy's role in loss that's a bit more ambiguous as well. Loss that's more ambiguous, yeah. I, I, you know, I would, I think, so what are you thinking of? It's someone who's missing, kind of that kind of thing, but not... I, I Even in the realm yeah. of COVID, individuals who had an idea for instance of what a time period would look like and that time period then is now different and it's this ambiguous feeling of well I never had this however I feel I lost it a lot of people lost a lot of things during uh, yeah. you know COVID they lost their educational yeah. experience that they wanted I, I see that you know every day basically my job but lost is that what you're kind of talking about is that yeah like loss of like they expected something, but it didn't happen. And then so there's a yeah, loss of expectation. Which, and there's loss I mean, there, which it, yeah, it's I think all loss, yeah. Maybe. I, I I don't know. I mean, I don't know that this would be the best way to address that problem, but I but I will say it's reminding me of you know, most of the people that we see have lost someone that they had a really positive relationship with, not a perfect mm -hmm. one, but but primarily positive. But every once in a while we do see people who haven't had, you know, been really a, a very difficult, maybe even an abusive relationship with the person who died. And they still have prolonged grief disorder, which is sort of surprising because you wouldn't necessarily expect them to be yearning and longing for someone who was abusing them, right? But the, but the issue is kind of what you're talking about. The issue is that they've held in their mind the idea that somehow they would be able to change this. You know, mm -hmm. there would be a different there would be a different way to have the future could be different. And I think that's kind of what you're talking about. The future, you know, they could have gone to school, but they, you know, they could have gone to classes, but they couldn't, you know, then they, they, they don't really know what those classes would have been. And, you know, so it's a little bit like that. And we did, we did work with some people like that, but I'm not, I, I, I don't know. I, I have no idea whether I would want to do the same kind of approach or not. You know, and your approach, uh, there's a heavy acceptance approach to this where you're accepting your feelings and there is no prescribed way to grieve and that kind of thing. Do you Have you seen that folks after treatment, that it's changed their life in other ways? They've just become more accepting as people, as humans, as with others? I mean, people, we've, we've heard a fair amount of that. You change, you know, you really helped me. And you, not only that, you changed my life. I mean, I, I think they change. Yes. I think it does. I think really, you know, there's this concept of broken open kind of like that, you know, that when we, when we experience intense trauma or loss or something really life-changing, we call it life-changing and it, it can be because it does often change our perspective 
And and you're right. I mean, one way that I, I would say that we do two things. One is we we promote acceptance, but we also we do work a lot on those self-determination goals, which are that especially that, you know, to help people feel connected to their own their own deepest um, interests and, and and values. And that's something that many people don't necessarily do. Or, you know, they might do it, but they're they're doing it more strongly and more deliberately, you know, more intentionally after this treatment. And that's that sort of carries forward as well. And the relationships with other people, we, you know, we do promote that and we try to work with them. So that can be different also. You also often see people that have lost, they they use the loss and they it, it almost to to then build off of like they'll establish a foundation or they'll um, you know, like mothers are drunk driving and things like that. Mm -hmm. Do you, do you feel like, um, that that's an important way to like what you're saying to, to uh, direct folks and, and to in, enhance their values and, and, um, their value directed yeah. action, things like that. We don't actually work. We don't encourage it. We don't discourage it. We certainly, mm -hmm. you know, we, we honor it in a way, but you know, and, and and I think it does, for some people, it has value. We've also seen people who get so, you know, like that becomes the way that they can feel okay about the loss. And then if it doesn't work out, you know, those foundations don't always thrive, right? And they're hard. It's hard work to to really, especially over time. And then they they kind of fall apart because that everything has been put there. So we we really try to help people you know, kind of in a more broad way. And and we really try to help people focus more on on who they are and on growing themselves. And then if they also want to do something like this, of course, it's a it's a very lovely thing to do and it's it can be a, a really positive thing to do. But we don't try to encourage it. I am there's one thing I was thinking about for a little bit of this time that we've been recording. And it's like grief in adolescent and younger populations. And um, I was just thinking about a family that might experience loss. And um, oftentimes myself, I think about the parents or perhaps um, people around my age, but I was thinking about like that experience for kids, what that would be like. Yeah. Um, and if their symptoms might be different as well. Yes. Children grieve differently than adults. That's that's for sure. And you know, they. I think part of it is they regulate emotions so differently than adults mm. do. Right? I mean, they have, in a way, they do it better. In a way, they do it worse. <laughs> in the sense that they can be very upset, and then, you know, ten minutes later, playing the sandbox perfectly happily. And younger children, and you know, in adolescents, there are different issues. There are developmental issues that come into play here. Um, so yeah, I mean we we haven't done work with kids, but we're about to submit a proposal for to to work. I'm gonna you know hopefully we're at the at our center, which is adults. We're gonna work with an, another group of colleagues who work with kids, and we're gonna try and do a family. We're we're gonna do a family focused um, therapy because also there there are also issues with kids that have to do with the parents. So if the parent, there is a lot of data, not, not a lot, but there's clear data that. Um, if a parent has prolonged grief disorder, someone in the family dies, the parent has prolonged grief disorder, the kids have definitely impaired long-term outcomes mm. and probably short-term as well. We haven't looked as much at short, they, this group hasn't looked as much as short-term as long-term. 
But um, but I want to say, can I go back to the cultural issue for one minute? Because I want to say one other thing. In in DSM five, there is I don't there's a um, there's something called the cultural formulation interview in the appendix, and it's it, it isn't grief oriented. So you, you know when you use it for grief, you have to a little bit modify it. But but we just did this in a class that I teach and. I did in two classes and the students were like some, you know, I often teach students who've had important losses themselves. And so they were, and they did this exercise, you know, where they, where they used that interview and, um, and, and, and interviewed each other essentially around either a loss they'd experienced or someone they knew had experienced. They sort of role played that. And, and they, and then we talked about it and they, so most of them said that it was really an amazing experience, that it was like, it really, it just helped them see their own grief in a different way. So I would just put a plug in for that, using that interview. I don't know if you guys know about it, but, or, I mean, probably it's useful in any context, but definitely I can tell you it's useful in grief for the reasons we've been talking about tonight. Great, thank you so much. Okay, any final questions or comments? Yeah, if that's okay. I kind of want to make it personal. Um, and feel free to dodge this question as uh, you may want to with many of my questions. But uh, it, if you, as the expert you are in grief, well, let's not make it hypothetical. Have you applied any of your learnings to modify your own grief process? And if so, how? Yeah, that's a, that, that's a great question. Um, and, and the answer is, I'm not sure because my, my, um, so I've had, of course I've had losses. I'm old enough. I've had losses. My, both of my parents have died. Um, I've had other people that I love have died, but the most recent really was a while back. And, um, I guess I'm very fortunate in that way, but my mother died in 1998 and I had really just, I began this work around 95. So, I mean, um, but I think it did, it did definitely have some effect on, on um, how I, I think it had some effect on how I thought about um, grief, but, but my grief experience at that time was that I, I was pretty, I was pretty emotional for about I don't know, a week or so. She she had cancer and I knew, you know, I, I was able to be with her. I was, it was an anticipated death. I, that's what it probably influenced is that I, I was aware that I should um, kind of try to deal with the loss part and the, and also deal with what life, you know, try to think about, anticipate and imagine life without her in a way that would be positive. And so, I think those are the things that that's probably where it, you know, it might've influenced what I was thinking and, and how I reacted. Um, it also, I, I personally too, you know, I'm, I'm an older person. My husband is an older person and we're at a stage of life where I think us and mo most of our friends, you know, think about what's going to happen when one of us dies, because one of us is going to die. And it, it's much more real at, at the stage of life I'm at. And I think it that it definitely, my work definitely affects how I think about that. Thank you. Thank you, Kathy, for joining us again. 
that does it for this extended edition of Let's Get Psyched.